Hello, this is Leslie Gartho-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor David Dorfman about criminal procedure, technology, and privacy. In this episode, I speak with Professor David Dorfman, professor of law at the Elizabeth Hubb School of Law and Pace Law School, and former defense attorney at the Legal Aid Society in Brooklyn, New York, about privacy rights and technology, particularly as they relate to the Fourth Amendment. Professor Dorfman not only explains how to analyze and evaluate particular expectations of privacy questions on exams, but also gives you an understanding of the history and also the court makeup. As he says, Questions concerning right to privacy are not just law, not just fact, but you need to understand the history, the politics, and the thinking of the Supreme Court in order to give a sound exam answer. Here's my discussion with Professor Dorfman. All right, well, thanks for coming. So we're going to talk today about criminal procedure and technology and privacy, which I am assuming is priority number one or close to it on your exam. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say, and it's it's priority in the development of criminal procedure investigation in every course given around the country. All right, cool. All right, well, you are an expert, so I'm happy to have you. All right, so tell me a little bit about the role of technology. I know, I know that you can, I know about pinging, right? The, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but beyond that, I'm not a crim pro expert. So tell me about technology in criminal, um, and privacy in criminal procedure. Well, it all comes back to the U.S. Constitution and the Fourth Amendment to that Constitution, which was obviously a product of the uh, Constitutional Congress of 1793. Hmm. And so their idea of what was a search and what was private was the world of 1793. And they had no idea about the world of iPhones, the world of um, electronic surveillance, the world of pinging, uh, uh, what we call locational evidence, Mm -hmm. uh, the world of um, computers. um, All of that um, is really outside. And they probably, you know, Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were inventors, and they were really smart guys, but they probably thought all of this was magic, right? (laughs) It's true. And that, by the way, that's like what I think is so cool about the study of law and the Constitution in particular, is that these concepts that were developed in the 1700s are elastic enough to help us live our lives today. Right. That, of course, is premised on one concept which is controversial, right? Because people who are what they call strict constructionists or originalists Mm -hmm. or textualists are always trying to pull us back to the world of 1793. And so there are judges, individual judges usually, who have a problem with bringing the Fourth Amendment up to date. And they say, wait, wait a second. The framers in 1793 would have thought this was eavesdropping, and eavesdropping is not a search, and so the fact oh. that we're using technology doesn't change the analysis, it's not a search. But a case called United States versus Katz came down in 1967, said that when the police put a bug, an electronic surveillance microphone, on a public phone booth and monitor somebody's conversation when they're making an interstate call about gambling, mm-hmm. right, a crime, <laughs> uh, that that's a search. Even though the Fourth Amendment says the only thing that's covered is persons, houses, papers, and effects. Well, the bug in Katz was not on his person. Right. It wasn't in his house. He didn't live in the phone booth. Right. Right. It wasn't his paper. 
Right. And he, it wasn't his effect. He didn't own the phone booth. Right. So arguably a strict constructionist, the person who is always looking back at the world of 1793, would say that was not a search and therefore is not covered by the Fourth Amendment. But the court disagreed. The majority said the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. And so this elastic concept that you just mentioned right. is really starts with that case. Well, that's so interesting because, uh, to your point, in 1776 or whatever, 1793, 1793 is, is no one ever imagined a telephone, let alone a telephone, outside of the home. Correct. So, um, I assume, I don't know, I have to be honest, I'm not sure when telephones were invented, but I think it was after 1793. Right. It was, so. it was in the late 19th century, early 20th right, century, right, right, um, right. Alexander Graham Bell. Right. Um, interesting. So, um, who's from Edison, New Jersey? That's right. That's right, right near my hometown. All right. So, we have cats, and cats really is kind of a benefit, I would say, right, to surveillance in the electronic age. That's kind of, to me, it feels like you're saying, okay, this is the door we're walking through to deal with electronics. It's both a benefit and a limitation because it, on the one hand, it says that the Supreme Court of the United States and our Constitution is elastic enough to analyze this new technology. We don't have to have a new amendment. We don't have to go through an amendment process. The existing language can be expanded. The limitation is, cats holds, that since it is a search when you put a bug on, some, on a public phone booth, that the government, the police, need to get a warrant signed by a judge before they do it. Right. So that's the limitation of cats. And that's very important, too, because everything that's followed since CATS, and we can kind of go through the various technologies, mm -hmm. um, uh, there's been this issue of, well, is it a search, even though it doesn't involve persons, houses, papers, and effects? And if it is a search, does it require that the police fill out an affidavit, um, go to a court, submit it to a judge, sometimes take testimony, have a judge sign a warrant, um, which is a lot of work, or because it's not a search, the police can go and do it without clearing it through a judge. Right. And that's a critical issue in, in the course criminal procedure investigation, and it's a critical issue for our whole understanding of the criminal justice system because our evidence shows that when the police are told, no, you can't do this on your own, you got to go to a judge, you got to get a warrant, blah, 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 guess what? About three-quarters of the time they don't do it because right. it's too much work. And they are also worried that a judge won't sign the warrant because there's not what's called probable cause to mm -hmm. search. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very important issue, and it recurs again and again and again, uh, especially since the technologies of police investigation have gotten so much more complicated right. and so much more challenging. Okay. So after Katz, there's another case, United States versus White, which happens in the 1970s, um, where the same technology in cats mm -hmm. is involved of a of a directional mic, a small uh, electronic bug, except this one is put on the person of a confidential informant or an undercover cop who's in conversation with the defendant. Or so the like suspect. a wire. Somebody being wired. Okay. And then the question is, in order to wire somebody to have a conversation with me, let's say I'm a suspect, do, do the police, like in cats, have to go to a judge and get a warrant to wire up a confidential informant, or can they do that on their own without a judge? And in white, the court says they don't need a warrant for that. Okay, why right? not? What's well, different? that's it. That's, it's a very interesting question. It's kind of complicated. 
So when you go into a phone booth. Right. Well, right. Right. <laughs> when you went into when a you went booth, to a phone right? booth and they don't exist anymore. But right. when you went into a phone booth. Right. Um, you and if it was wired, mm-hmm. you didn't know that it was being wired. It was completely right, right. outside yeah. of your ability to observe. You went into the phone booth, you closed the door, you put money into the phone, and for that time being, it's a temporarily private place. And your expectations are that it's the conversations between you and the person on the other end of the line, okay? And that's the idea of it's protecting people, not places. It's protecting the... It's like you've rented that space Mm -hmm. as private space for whatever, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. When you have a conversation with somebody else, you're always, and if you're having a criminal exchange, right? You're talking about a crime you're going to commit together or whatever. You're always running the risk that person's going to tell on you, right? Yes. That person could go to the cops right afterwards. That person could betray you. They could, person could be what we call a false friend. Right. The fact that they're wearing a wire doesn't change that analysis. You're already assuming a risk that you know about. Oh, yes. Okay, so you yes. know the risk you're assuming, and I therefore see. the fact that the person betrays you with a higher technology doesn't change the analysis. When you go into a phone booth, you don't know you're being betrayed right. because it's not made available to you. So, uh, you know, you can't see it. So that's the difference between cats and white. Mm-hmm. And it... From that, those two cases, there continues to be situations where this kind of assumption of the risk analysis pushes the court in one direction as opposed to the analysis having to do with, you know, uh, uh, a, a risk you don't really know about okay. pushing us in another direction. Okay. So, Smith- right, so, there, so, so just mm-hmm. so I understand, by the way, Nora Ephron once said, there's no such thing as a secret. So, Correct. There you go. Um, all right, so so just to make sure I know where we are, we have cats, which says you have an expectation of privacy in a phone booth, right? Correct. Then we have white. That says you says don't, have, you an don't expect- have an expectation when you're having when a conversation having- with a false friend. Right, and in a way, they kind of say the same thing because this thing is where is your expectation of privacy? It's reasonable in a phone booth that has four walls against right. around you. And when you're talking to someone, there's no such thing as a secret. Correct. So now are you saying we're going in a fork in the road? There is a fork in the road, okay. but we're moving... Uh, are we that- still traveling the road? No, well, we're, 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 there's a fork in the road, but um, we've actually, in the last couple of cases before the court, we seem to be moving back towards convergence. Okay. So the fork in the road, um, there's certain technologies that have not been deemed to be a search. I'll give you an example of a few of them. Uh, something called a pen register. So when the government wants to know what phone numbers you're dialing out from your house or what the phone numbers are of people who are dialing into your phone, they can put a pen register at the, uh, which is a piece of technology that just memorializes the numbers. It doesn't, okay. the content of the conversations, no. So it just tells you what phone number you called. Correct. Okay. But in a criminal investigation, that's very useful well, because... Well, we just saw that in the news the other day, by the way, but yeah. Right. But, you know, anytime there's a conspiracy, they want to see who's a conspirator. The numbers you repeatedly phone or the numbers of the people who repeatedly phone to you gives has content, right? It gives you more evidence that there is this connection between the people. So the pen register is not located in the person's house. It's not a bug that's put in their phone or in a light fixture or something like like in the movies. The pen register is actually installed at the phone company. Oh. Okay, but it at on your line. Mm-hmm. So then the, the the court in Smith versus Maryland says that's not a search. 
One, they didn't actually go in your house, so there was no trespass. And then secondly, you don't have an expectation of privacy in the numbers that you dial or the numbers of people who dial you because that is shared information with the phone company anyway. Back at the time of Smith versus Maryland, um, you got charged per call. And when you got your bill, if you remember, Leslie, you actually used to <laughs> yes, get the, the numbers, numbers yeah. of the people who called you. No, that, that was shared information with a third party. Okay. And once you share that information with a third party, your expectation of privacy diminishes to the point of none at all. So, for instance, similarly with a, with a bank, if you transact with a bank, a third party, your financial information doesn't require, for the police to get it, they, they require a subpoena, but they don't require a warrant. They don't have to show probable cause. All they have to show is relevance. So whenever, under Smith, whenever you have this relationship with a third entity, whether a person or a company, then you've got no no real expectation of privacy. It kind of explodes. So the, so, so the police can look at your Facebook website page. Oh, yes, yeah. they do all the time. Right, and but that there's an issue, which is probably not right for right now, about whether Facebook, this, I don't know if this is the case anymore, whether it was giving the information Right, that's, that's a, a different issue. We won't even and that, that and that may not be a constitutional issue. Right, right. right, right. That may be an issue right. of, of of either common law or statutory right. privacy. And as you're saying all this, and I, it's really wonderful and very linear, and I understand it, but I do think it's important for students, particularly this generation, to understand. You know, just like the framers or of the Constitution couldn't contemplate what happened in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, I suspect that many students of today, it's hard for them to understand that when we were kids. Privacy was ours to give away. Correct. Today, it's yours to reclaim, I feel like. Right. And that's, so let's okay, jump ahead okay, yeah. to the most recent cases because okay. that's exactly where convergence happens and where the reclamation of privacy happens. Okay. So there's a case called United States versus Jones. And in the United what States. What was that case? Uh, that's, I guess that's about eight years ago. Okay. All right. And in that case, the police put uh, what they call a cue ball, which is a GPS device, on uh-huh. the bottom of somebody's car right. to track their comings and goings Okay, on their car. Now, they actually did it pursuant to a warrant, but they screwed up the whole warrant process. They put it in too late, and the warrant, the, the, the window from the, from the judge was 10 days, and they put, they put the device on it on the 11th day when the warrant was no longer valid. And then they tracked this person for 28 days, mm-hmm. 24-7. Wow. So they knew all the comings and goings of Mr. Jones. And at the time, they did not have a valid warrant. So the court, and this is a nine-to-nothing opinion. In fact, the, 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 so we're talking about a, a unanimous opinion held that that was a search. Right. And they needed a valid warrant. And so all of the evidence that it was obtained from that uh, attaching the cue ball was suppressed, meaning excluded from evidence, could not be used against Mr. Jones. Um, he gets a new trial. That was a drug uh, uh, case, um, and the, the what the what there's two kind of opinions in that case, but the, the majority opinion says, okay, this is actually pretty simple. And even in the world of 1793, there was a tort called trespass to chattel. Oh yeah, I teach that. Right. Of course, yeah. Okay, so your car is a piece of movable property, right. therefore it's chattel, right. and the police putting a cue ball a GPS device on the undercarriage of your car is a trespass um, in a common law sense of the world of 1793, right. and therefore they needed a valid warrant to do that, mm-hmm. and since they didn't, easy peasy, easy decision for Justice Scalia. 
the rest of the court, well, not the whole rest of the court, but a large group of the judges, five judges held, actually, the better analysis is cats. In cats, the real theory isn't trespass and the world 1793, it's the world of privacy. Remembering that the word privacy does not even appear in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. But you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your comings and goings in your car, right? And, and, that, and, that, and that is a court interpretation of the language of the Fourth Amendment. Well, it's right? more than just an interpretation. It's really kind of moving up many, some of the judges, including some liberal judges like Justice Black, really had a problem with injecting the concept of privacy when it wasn't in the text. That's what I'm saying. So, oh, yeah. it's, oh so it's like a court It's created, more than just an interpretation. It's, it's just like a court-created expectation. Except it's the Constitution. Is it, is it what language is attacked on the Fourth Amendment? You know? um, reasonableness. Okay. That the, reasonable ex, uh, the, the reasonableness of the search and the seizure implies oh, okay. Okay. an expectation of privacy. Okay. So, okay. so the test... That comes from Katz. It actually comes from Justice Harlan's concurrence. Is um, the test? It's two prongs mm-hmm. again. For you know, you, law students are very, very familiar with what two prong and three prong right, tests. You right. know, all right. Uh, one is there has to be an actual subjective expectation of privacy. That you know, it has to be honest. It has to be what the person expects. Got so, it. like in the case of Katz, it's the closing the door of the phone booth and the putting the money in and the a subjective expectation that nobody's listening. Okay. But the second prong is where the mischief is, which is, and that expectation is reasonable if society is willing to recognize it. Now that, that's, an, uh, that's a change. That the, Those goalposts move all the time. Because right. what we expected, right, and what we would recognize as, as an expectation of privacy back in the day right. when we were kids is different now. Uh-huh. Right? And it seems like every couple of years that expectation of privacy changes so let's talk about the gps device i'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has a gps either in their iphone right. or cell right. phone Waze is a GPS, or yeah. it's installed in the car already right so it's not even relevant about particularly relevant about whether the police put a a, a gps device on the bottom of your car they can track your car if you have a gps in the car that you put in Okay. So it doesn't involve trespass. Okay. So then, so the ju- the judges who concur in Jones, the ones, unlike Scalia, who are not thinking about the world 1793, but thinking about the world of 2010 or so, I, around the time when that case came down, right. are thinking differently. They're thinking, shouldn't people who have a car with a GPS device still be protected from warrantless use of GPS technology, even if it's their own GPS that's being used? Right. Right, and the court says yes. That's what a that's reasonable good. expectation of privacy should be, and that basically um, creates a problem with Smith versus Maryland. If you remember, Smith said that if you share your private information or your information with a third party, like a phone company, you don't have an expectation of privacy in those numbers. Well, guess what? When you have GPS, you're sharing your information right through your device with the technology that bounces the signal off of a satellite or off of a, um, uh, a, a tower. Mm-hmm. Isn't that sharing the information? Shouldn't Smith say that your expectation of privacy explodes there too? No. And so in yeah. Jones they say yeah. privacy is not an all or nothing proposition. When you share it for very specific purposes, 
that doesn't mean you share it for all purposes. It doesn't explode just because it you do share information. So when you have an iPhone, yes, you have a, a relationship to the company that sold you the phone. You have a relationship with the provider of the services. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the police can, without a warrant, open up your iPhone and and expose all of its contents. Or in the case of Carpenter, the most recently, that doesn't mean the police can get locational information about where you are mm -hmm. just because you're using your iPhone and the signal is bouncing off of a tower and that tells the police where you are at a time of a crime. With, with Carpenter and Riley, which is the uh, uh, cell phone case, the court, again, is moving back towards a cat's analysis of reasonable expectation of privacy. And reasonable expectation of privacy is... Just because for convenience you want to be able to use a GPS or to be able to use an iPhone or be able to travel around and receive um, texts or information on, on the Internet on your iPhone doesn't mean you're giving up your expectation of privacy vis-a-vis -vis the police. Right. So they still need a warrant. Right. Right. So many people think that Smith versus Maryland, the pen register case, is no longer good law, though it's never been reversed directly right. but it seems like if it's still good law it only applies to pen registers it, so we've really but every time new technology comes out the analysis has been rethought except that that language about society's expectations right. seems to give lower court judges the ability to evaluate the current status of the Technology of the and day the expectations. and the expectations of technology of the day, which okay. I, and I, I'm presuming that none of these were unanimous decisions; that they were all split. Well, up actually, the... no, that's not true. Oh, really? So, wow. uh, well, Jones, the GPS case was nine to nothing. Wow! But right. you're right about Carpenter and Riley; those cases are a little more split. And so, th this is this is less about law and more about politics. But the who's on the court then really matters because the fact is, is with certain judges. Um, who are predictably um, more, you know, kind of want to keep the the theory of the Fourth Amendment as close to the yeah, more conservative seventeen ninety three as possible yeah. are much more less likely to go with this much more elastic sort right. of Katz analysis. Right. But Katz is the driver. That that nineteen sixty seven case is still the most potent case in the Fourth Amendment. And every time we have new technology, we have to go back to cats, to cats and see, you know, how to how, how what the, what the thing. A, how does this compare to being in a, in a telephone? Book, That's great. Right? That's right. An example. Well, what's a question you've asked? You've taught this quite some time at a few schools, actually. So, what would you? What would be an example? Like an easy, quickie exam question about this? Okay, so since Jones only talks about a GPS device that was installed by the police, mm -hmm. I changed the facts to in, involve a GPS device that the person driving the car actually consciously brings to the car. Okay, like Dirty John. Did you see Dirty John? No. Anyway, okay. <laughs> okay, so that's, what, that's one change that I might make, okay? Um, another way to test it would be pen registers are still being used. Right. Okay. But everyone has to know what a pen register is. I assume once you take the class, you understand what a pen right. register is. Right. But uh, all it is is a device that records phone numbers. Right. Right. So uh, actually the history of this is just a side note, but it's a little interesting, which is, okay, so the court in Smith versus Maryland in the 1970s holds that pen registers do not require a warrant because they're not a search. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Also, there's language in there that says phone numbers as opposed to the content of the phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, you have you have an expectation of privacy in the things you say during a phone call, but the phone numbers of themselves you don't. And that has since been interpreted as the concept of metadata, okay. that a phone number, an address, like in an email address, all that is not the content of the communication, but metadata right. that, and again, you generally don't have expectation of privacy in metadata. So um, the what I, now, after Smith came down, Congress, the United States Congress, was totally flabbergasted that the Supreme Court had held that you don't that you don't need a warrant for a pen register, and within months enacted legislation that you did. Wow! So even though the Supreme Court of the United States held that society is not willing to accept or recognize the expectation of privacy in a pen register, mm-hmm. Congress, which is elected by society, a, a very good representative of what society expects, enacts the law that requires that pen registers. Wow. Be interesting, right? So you could argue, doesn't that really kind of implicitly criticize the Supreme Court that they 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 got it wrong? Because they were saying in the second prong of the Katz analysis that pen registers is no big whoop, right? It's right. not. And Congress, within months, says yes, it is a big whoop, but we want wow. warrants. So that's very interesting, just in thinking about whether the Supreme Court, in making these kinds of what we call kind of normative judgments on right. the second prong, whether right. they get it right. Right. And then you could think about, oh, who are in the Supreme Court? Right. Right? Are they truly representative of society? Do they really know what the average person would expect? Right? You know, we always have this question. There's a, there's a, off the topic, but just, I always ask my students about that. There's this one case about, which is about expectation of privacy, and it involves two young African-American men taking an overnight bus from Tallahassee, Florida, back to Michigan in the middle of winter, Mm -hmm. right? And um, the issue has to do with what the police can do in order to search them. Um, And there's nothing about their conduct that indicates anything particularly suspicious. And Justice Rehnquist writes the opinion, and I'm thinking, and he basically talks about their expectations and I'm thinking what is has Justice Rehnquist ever taken an overnight bus from Florida to Michigan has he ever been a young black person all of the expectations Mm -hmm. um, that he's imposing on his analysis come from a worldview that couldn't be more different right Right, and so you wonder about these that's things. That's interesting. That's right? interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, right. No. And 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 guess what? I mean, now our our Supreme Court is more representative. So, for instance, Justice Sotomayor, who grew up in the South Bronx, who was a, uh, raised by a single mom who's uh, Latina, you know, her understanding of what society is willing to recognize on all kinds of ways is going to be very different right. than the expectations that another member of the court who has a very different background right, might have. Right, right, right. Anyway, that's, that's it's a little, it's, 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 I find that interesting. Yeah. But, but let's get back to pen registers. So it was, it was a no big deal. The statute was clear that they needed a warrant for pen registers, even though the case said they didn't. But then 9-11 happened. Hmm. And after 9-11, right, with the attack on this country, there was a series of, of, of statutes called the Patriot Act that right. were oh, yeah. enacted. Yeah. Part of it was that the federal government, the FBI, the NSA, and the various federal um, uh, um, uh, intelligence agencies were able to use pen registers mm-hmm. without a warrant 
so long as they were targeting suspected terrorists. Mm -hmm. So we kind of, one of the lessons of that is, is that one of the drivers of changes in the law is historical events. Right. Right. It's not only the development of technology, but our concerns about privacy changed on the 12th of September 2001 right. Right. because suddenly we were so scared that we were willing maybe to give up some privacy in order to get more security. But isn't that true just generally everything's a balancing test? Correct. And so the more fear we have, the more... It's like the perfect example, and I do want to get back to your um, typo, is the TSA, right? Mm. You're willing to stand on that line to get onto an airplane because of the promise that you're going to be a little more safe than you would have, which has not, you know, that's not a... Right to privacy issue. It's just it, it it's is emblematic. Actually, it is a right to privacy issue. Um, you've at, well, a, yeah, at, I mean, at, at an airport, your right to privacy is diminished substantially, especially at an international airport, right. which is like a international border, where your right to privacy really uh, is I'm trumped by by the right of the sovereign of the right. country to make sure that customs and who gets in and out right. of the country is right. controlled. Um, so it is, um, it is, but it is still a privacy issue because there was a big dispute after 9-11 when New York City police were basically stopping people before they went on subways mm -hmm. and examining their bags, hmm, I don't right? Remember that. Yeah, it was a big deal, and there was a lawsuit by the uh, ACLU over that because, yeah, we've all gotten kind of comfortable and, you know, no big deal about that kind of, scrutiny when you're at an airport we just understand it it's right. always been that way to some right. extent right it's a little more intense now they take off your shoes they put right. you through an x-ray now instead of just a magnetometer but we've already been conditioned to not see that as a place where we have an expectation of privacy right. but going onto the subway if you're a new yorker yeah has no, never been time for that yeah and it has never been something right. and then suddenly it was right, right. Uh, suddenly they started looking at people's bags and um, they so don't do that anymore, for the record. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> but for, for the first time. year after yeah, 9 11, they did do it. I, really, I don't remember that. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. don't remember that. Um, all right, so let's get back to the exam yeah. problem. Okay. All right. So I, I would introduce a pen register um, uh, issue. Uh, and now, especially post Riley, post Carpenter, where this idea of you lose your expectation of privacy when you have this third party relationship. I'd reintroduce the pen register um, in a context where it it you're you're not sure if the court will go with a the old Smith versus Maryland analysis that say it's not a search or the more recent analysis and um, so and the way I teach is I want them to explore both sides. Yeah, well, I, everyone does. Right. So I want them to make the best argument. Uh, for saying that Smith is still good law and that they, the, the police can do this without a warrant, and then also the best counter-argument for the fact that uh, the implications of the uh, L, uh, cell phone case and the locational evidence case, uh, the Carpenter, is that Smith versus Maryland is either not good law at all anymore, it's been effectively overruled, or is very limited to its facts. And that challenges them in a number of ways. One, understanding both areas. Right. And then also, because they have, even if they think it's no longer good law, it may no longer be good law as to these facts, but still be good law in a much more narrow set of facts. Right. And that also gets them to think at a sophisticated level yeah. about what a court can do 
with a particular uh, legal issue. That's great. So if a student were, were, were saying that Smith is still good law, they just have to say why the pen register is akin to the facts that happened in Smith. Correct. If they want to, if they have to get around Smith's, let's say they're representing the other side, then they're going to have to do one of two things, either distinguish the, the pen register hypothetical you give on the exam from the facts of that other set of cases, correct? Right. Or talk about why these new cases, Carpenter, which came after Smith, right. actually overrules or limits right. is Smith. Right. So that that's a good framework for analysis. That's right. And, and I, you can do that... Um, uh, in in many contexts, there's a, another piece of technology case which I haven't talked about involved the police using of a thermal imager. Okay, mm-hmm. so the police park their car on the public w- road, so there's no expectation of privacy. They don't actually cross into somebody's home, but then they aim this device called a thermal imager, and that device can actually read the heat that is emanating from people's homes from their roof or from a wall. Right, and if the if the heat that's coming off is really disproportional, it'll come out in certain colors. It's an infrared yeah. device, yeah. and it will indicate that the person inside is using heat lamps, which are used to grow marijuana. Oh, interesting. Okay, and so that's, in in Kylo, that's the case. The police have that data in combination with the fact that the person's electric bills are off the charts, and um, I guess they must have had some other evidence. They go and get a warrant. Uh, to raid the house, and they find that this person's been growing enormous amounts of pot in Wait, their they house. they get the warrant based on the thermographer that Thir- they used? Or b- 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 the thermal imager, okay. correct. And then they, the, that, that to me seems like a blatant... Well, this is the question. Actually, that's a close case. That's a five to four case. Um, so Justice Scalia, who loves the home, right. because in 1793... Right, your home was your castle. Correct, and that's the language from Blackstone, who's right. the treatise writer at the time. Right. Right. Um, he says... Anytime you use technology Correct. to get information about the interior of a home that could not have been obtained otherwise other than a warrantless entry, especially when the technology is not readily available to the public, that is a search that requires a warrant beforehand, right. before using it. But the Justice Stevens, who's a liberal, right. dissented, and he said, no, this is not... An intrusion into the home. It's reading information that is in the public realm. It's emanations from the home. They're reading the heat that is out in the public air. Right. And then they're using it to make an inference about what's in the home. But there's no... It's not like an x-ray of the home. It's actually reading information that is actually emanating from the home or emitted from the home. And therefore, you have no expectation of privacy in that. Just like you wouldn't have an expectation of privacy in, let's say the smell of marijuana that would be wafting right. into the street. I see. Oh, that's interesting. So that was a 5-4 decision. Right. Um, everybody who reads the decisions thinks that both sides drew blood on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very close one. Um, but it, it, it actually, in the case, it, it is also a case where the liberal conservative breakdown of the court is not what you would expect. So the judges who rule that there is an expectation of privacy that requires a warrant in thermal imaging include Scalia, who's a conservative, and Thomas, who's a conservative. Yeah, because I was going to say, this is a little counterintuitive to me because you have the conservative... To me, I feel like the conservative judges are more pro-police, whereas the liberal judges are more personal liberties, but in this particular case, you have the conservative judges kind of opting for a personal liberty. So here's another thing that we talk about in class and sometimes can can leak into an exam. 
Anytime the search or the, uh, the possible search involves the home, the conservative judges um, get more nervous because the home is exactly what the people in 1793 were most concerned about. And this gets back to the history, okay? At the time of the revolution, mm-hmm. um, uh, there was major concerns about the British government uh, doing what they called warrantless or general searches of colonists' homes. And the reason they did it is, and it's the reason we had the, uh, the Boston Tea Party, is that the, the British constabulary, which is like a police force, and their customs officials were looking for people who were buying goods without paying tariff and tax, because all of those tariffs and taxes went back to Britain to help support the crown, mm-hmm. all right? And so that's taxation without representation is really about tariffs and taxes on goods that were being moved in and out of Boston Harbor, New York Harbor, um, at the time prior to the revolution. And it was a major driver of the revolution was taxation without representation. And so what the British government did was they would break into people's homes without uh, a warrant that we would recognize as a warrant. Um, and then basically rifle through their things in order to find what they call contraband, meaning right. illegal stuff, meaning stuff where people hadn't paid tariffs and taxes. Mm-hmm. So um, it it's clear to the strict constructionists, right, these people who are really concerned about the world of 1793, that the purpose of the Fourth Amendment, more than anything else, mm-hmm. was to stop that. Okay. That government could not break into your home without a warrant. Right. So anytime a home is involved, Suddenly, a judge like Scalia, who might be pro-police in other contexts, suddenly becomes a very fierce civil libertarian. He hmm. is, because he cares about the world, uh, that part of the world that is most close and similar to the world of 1793, wow. and it's protecting the home. So that's where you see the shift. Interesting. And then Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer, who dissent in that Kylo, the thermal imagery case, are very modern judges who are thinking about technology, and they're saying, wait a second, this technology is not actually invading the home. All it is is it's taking evidence that's emitted from the home, uh, and you don't have an expectation of privacy in that, that, um, just like you wouldn't have an expectation of privacy in the aromas that come from your home or anything else that emits from your home. Um, and so there, there you don't feel saddled by this analysis of the home being special. Right. They're more modern, and they're just thinking about, okay, what does this technology do? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's it's it is it's interesting. And so the one of the things that the students have to learn, in addition to, I know your your podcast is about law to fact, right? Is that it's not just law and it's not just fact. That especially when you're talking about constitutional law, you're talking about history, you're talking about politics, and you're talking about individual people and their own predilections, remembering that any individual decision is the product of nine people, right? Right. Uh-huh. And so it's not, I mean, it's not a, a, a kind of mechanical apl- application of law to facts, but there's other stuff going on. That's so interesting. Well, on that note, this was really, really this is really interesting. Good. <laughs> and I'm always happy when I can understand it. So there you go. You explained it beautifully. So thank you so much. I think that you really have laid it out nicely for the students. This has been really helpful, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Leslie. All right. Bye-bye.
So that's my discussion with Professor David Dorfman on criminal procedure technology and privacy. Hope you enjoyed it. As with all of our podcasts, they are available at www.lawdefact.com. And as we always ask, if you like us, it would be awesome if you could star us, rate us, give us feedback on any of the platforms on which you listen. And you can always reach out to us at lawdefact at gmail.com. Thanks as always to www.bensound for the music and enjoy your day. Mm-hmm.